Well, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy to us in Christ that, that we are alive and we're breathing and we're here to hear your word. Father, would you um, fill me with your spirit that the word might be broken with truth and effectiveness and that your people might be strengthened in their faith those who have yet failed to consider your cosmic glory, that they might be challenged to consider life beyond just these days. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, about 10 years ago, there was a production at the London uh, National Theater called His Dark Materials. And in this production, uh, it had witches and goblins and demons and angels and the like. And it was really uh, driven around trying to answer this question, um, dealing with the injustice of the world and the existence of God. And uh, in the end, God is destroyed. He, as one reviewer said, he's kind of like the withered old man, withered old man that just dies. And, uh, and the intention, the focus, at least according to the artistic director, was, was um, trying to deal with this, if God exists, uh, why is he indifferent to his creation? Uh, this is an age-old question. I mean, how do you reconcile this? existence of God. This is what a theodicy is. A theodicy is trying to understand the presence of evil and its place with the existence of a good and a holy God. I mean, how do you reconcile the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous? It's a serious question you have to tangle with. You have to consider it. Because I think if we don't, we just slowly move to a moral apathy and a spiritual confusion. You know what I mean. I mean, if this idea that the continuing existence of evilness, in spite of a good and holy God, uh, will begin to cause us to doubt, and then in our doubt we'll find ample justification to live the way we already want to live, in terms of just pushing God to the periphery of life. So it's a, it's a significant question. I think history and Scripture deal with this, though. I think history and Scripture speak to the, the reality of God intersecting and at least firing, firing a warning shot over the bow of evil. And I'd like you to read with me, if you will, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. You know, the chapter divisions and verses weren't... Um, around till much later in church history, and, and whoever got the responsibility to divide up Malachi fouled it up pretty good on this one. 2.17, we'll read through 3.5. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of God, and he delights in them, or asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. 
He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, let me remind you of the context. I keep trying to go through this with you so that you really remember it for a very long time. You have, okay, so we're in Malachi, we're probably mid-5th century, and a and hundred years prior, if you remember, the children of Israel, who had been disciplined by God, were delivered over to Babylon. Well, God in mercy repatriates them to the land. They had come back to the land, and... Uh, which is just unheard of, right? Uh, a king's going to just let go of all of his prisoners, all the workers, all doing the kind of the grunt work of a society. We're going to just let them all go back, and we're going to send them back with a check so they can rebuild a temple. So here, a, a temple is rebuilt. The people are back. Sacrifices are taking place. Now, at this point in Israel's history, the optimism is on the rise. I mean, I mean, these things can't be done by men. You know, men wouldn't just release all these prisoners. Men wouldn't just pay to have the temple rebuilt. So they knew there was divine intervention, that God was bringing back a people to the land to worship him. Now, where we are in Malachi, it's about 75 to 100 years later. And at this point, their love of God had grown cold. They really questioned the love of God. You saw that in chapter 1. They began to have joyless, half-hearted worship. You saw that in the second half of chapter 1. Uh, marriages were disintegrating. We saw that last week. Leadership was a mess. Their crops were failing. Uh, they were still under Persian rule. They're beginning to wonder, what, what's happening here? You know, rebuilding the temple, they thought, at least implied in earlier prophets, that the glory of the Lord would rest upon the temple. And there was no glory. And so here you have the absence of the blessings of God, You have the presence of the prosperity of the wicked. And so Israel started thinking, maybe we got God wrong. You know, maybe he really does love the wicked. Maybe he really won't bring justice. I mean, they ask, they say these things like everyone who does evil is good in the sight of God. They just, they make everything upside down. Where is the God of justice, they ask. Now, I don't think it's inappropriate to inquire over the ways of God, even in the midst of trial. I don't think it's inappropriate to ask how long, O Lord. I don't think it's inappropriate to, to, to really consider with the brethren what God might be doing. I think we see that in Psalm 73. I think we see that in the first chapter of Habakkuk, legitimately inquiring of God what is going on here. I think there's a place for that. I don't think they were exercising that. I, I think they were, they were angry, they were accusatory, I think they did see the prosperity of the wicked. I think they saw their crops doing well. They saw that they had the power and the rule, and they started beginning to think, God, are you even here? In other words, they took their circumstances in their life, and they began developing theological truths out of the circumstances rather than the word of God. 
They said, well, if this is my environment, now I'm going to determine what God is like or not like based upon what I'm going through. Very dangerous. Very dangerous to do that. They did that. And they earned the rebuke that they were weary in God. Now, they weren't weary in God in terms of some mental frustration or fatigue, but they were weary in God over the hardness of their heart and just their blindness. Now, I wonder with you, might you struggle as well with the administration of God's justice? Do you see the continued delay in God dealing with evil, and do you begin to question his goodness? I mean, do you tend to see the prosperity of your neighbors who don't care anything about God? Do you see the wicked getting along just fine and begin to wonder, God, are you really concerned with justice? Perhaps you've, you've come to Christ and you've waited for the abundant life and it's not there. Maybe you've been walking with Christ for a long time. And you've prayed for your children, and they still haven't turned the corner. And you begin to just wonder. Those seeds of doubt begin to draft, drift into your mind, wondering, is God really good? I mean, will he really uphold justice for the people? I think a lot of us actually question this. They did. And, and God's going to answer him. And like when God answered out of Job, or God answered Job out of a whirlwind, and he was told to brace himself, then, then I just suggest we do the same. We brace ourselves for his answers. So to the question, where is the God of justice? Well, we're going to find that God is a God of justice, and his justice is going to be answered. This question will be answered, at least in part, in this coming of a messenger. And, and this coming of a second messenger. That God will intrude upon our land and he will bring about justice as we see in this text. So I just want to look at it verse by verse to try to show you and walk with you through how is God a God of justice in the presence of evil. The first thing that we see, the first thing about God and bringing justice is he always brings a warning first. Look with me in three one. He says, Behold, I send my messenger. And he will prepare the way before me. He says, I send my messenger. Now, he says, behold. Literally, in Hebrew, he says, behold me. Look at me. God's speaking. It's like my dad would say to me when I was in trouble. He said, look at me. I, I knew something very important was coming. And I did not want to be swinging around with my eyes when my father was saying, look at me. And God's saying, behold me. So in our search for justice, he says, behold me, I'm going to send you a messenger. Now, this was not unusual. When a king would come to a town, they would send a forerunner. There was no instant messaging. There was no texting. A forerunner would go and prepare the people to receive the king. If the roads were busted up with ruts and holes, they would be, they would be repaired. But this forerunner was going to get people ready for the coming of a king. Now, when Malachi prophesies that this messenger is coming, he doesn't reference himself here. I think he's drawing out of the book of Isaiah. In other words, in Isaiah chapter 40, the exact same thing was said. And, and what Malachi is saying is the promise still holds. It was said 800 B.C. It's being said 450 B.C. It still holds. In Isaiah chapter 40, we read, A voice cries, 
In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain will be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all the flesh shall see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So here you have this prophesy Malachi that a messenger is going to come, and this messenger is being quoted from Isaiah. Now all the New Testament writers, all the Gospels, speak of this messenger as John the Baptist. They take Isaiah 40, 3 to 5, they quote it, and they say, John is this man. Even Jesus in Matthew 11 says that this is John the Baptist. Even calls John the Baptist a type of Elijah, you know, a prophet warning the people. Now, John did come, as you know, in the New Testament. He came and he began to prophesy and to preach that this king's coming. He said, a kingdom is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. He began to say that he's mightier than I, that I'm not fit to untie the sandal on his foot, that I baptize with water, he will baptize with fire. This king is beyond measure, beyond tracing out. He's glorious, he's mighty, it's overwhelming. He is the king of justice, and he's preparing. Now, what's interesting about this scripture is that we're going to find in Malachi 4, 5, there's another Elijah coming announcing again about another day of judgment. We seem to be caught in this text here. It's like a a double-layered fulfillment that John the Baptist is speaking of Jesus coming. But then there's another type of Elijah at the very end that's speaking of the final coming, kind of showing us this two coming of Jesus Christ. But for the Christian, we live in between these comings. He obviously hasn't come. So we live in between these. So what is the call upon us? Well, first, that we heed the warnings, that we consider the warnings of God. You know, kind of like the thankfulness I would have if I'm driving down the road at 50 miles an hour and there's a sign that says road ends in 50 yards. That's good to know. It's, It's a merciful thing when God warns his people. Folks, you are warned week after week in preaching. That God gives warnings to you over and over, not just with John, not just with that second Elijah, but you're warned over and over. That every week when the word's broken for you, the Christian is listening to seek change. Last week, let me just press this against you. Uh, Last week I preached on marriage and about that unique covenantal union between the man and the woman and God. And we looked at Ephesians 5. How many of you men went home and asked your wives, how am I leading? Am I sacrificing for you? How is our covenantal union? And ladies, how many of you went went home and said, am I respecting, am I responding to you? That you heard the word, perhaps even poorly delivered, at least we read the word. and, And did you go home and respond to it? Did you heed the warning? Or or was it just wasted away? Otherwise, it does beg the question, why do we come? So the word is to be a warning to you, to prepare you, to ready you, so that you're not caught unawares. You're not sleeping at the switch. There's other warnings. Natural disasters. God has just put into the fabric of this fallen world. Natural disasters are a warning for you. 
Instead of trying to interpret these natural disasters, we're just called to respond to them. Uh, Jesus gives us this in Luke 13. He says, 18. You know, so the disciples are trying to ask Jesus to explain about these 18 people who died when a tower fell on them. And, and of course, they, like us, want to know, boy, what happened? They must have really got their due. What did they do to get it? And we didn't get it. You know how we try to look at this We try to look at tragedy always with cause-effect in mind, not realizing there's a whole dimension beyond us. And Jesus says, of those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? In other words, they probably got their due, didn't they? And Jesus says, no. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. He's saying, look at that. I'm not explaining why it happened. I'm just saying that that is a marker for you to see the brevity of life. And to be reconciled to God, to repent, otherwise you perish. So, so, I mean, warnings are good when you heed them. But not just for the Christian here, but for all people. I mean, this warning ought to stir up our souls. Why? 400 years prior to John coming, it was announced that John was coming. Now, that's pretty fancy magic. Or God sovereign over the history of this world. In other words, what I think it shows us is a prophecy was given, a prophecy was fulfilled, so this world that we live in is not some endless cycle of random events, but that God, by design, is moving this world to a desired end. It it ought to stir us up that, in fact, this thing is moving in the direction that God wants it to go. And so now to fail to heed the warnings, when you know that it's already coming true, is just to Not just to be blind, but to stick your head in sand as you're blind. Because clearly God is running this world. And he's going to bring it to an end where justice will be meted out. This issue with warnings, I really got angry. Harold Camping, uh, I don't know what I would call him, a radio preacher. Uh, If you remember back in May 21, the world is going to end. And uh, he missed it, mathematical error. Uh, computers, you can't believe that would happen anymore. Uh, so he said, no, it was going to be October 21. That was two days ago. It didn't happen. He's like this apocalyptic, the boy who cried wolf. You know, it, it, it's a frightening thing to, con- to continue to give these warnings like the boy who cried wolf. He says, wolf, wolf, and we all run and move quickly. I was just kidding. Wolf, you know, he, he cries it, and then at the end, he's all alone. And, and I wonder what damage he has done to make us dull to warnings. I, I would think at a minimum, God's justice will come. It's going to come with a warning first. Secondly, it's going to come with the second messenger, that God's justice will be meted out in this world through Jesus Christ. And I want to explain this to you. Look with me back at three one. He says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. Now, this is a second messenger here. Don't think it's the same, because there's too much divine language associated with this messenger. Look what he says here. Uh, He says, Behold, I'll send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. So me is following John the Baptist. Me is following the first messenger. Who is me? Well, it's the Lord of hosts. He's the speaker. 
But not only that, it's furthered by looking the second half of verse 1. And the Lord, now that word Adon, that, that Hebrew word is used in the singular with the definite article. It's always used for Yahweh. So he's saying, and Yahweh, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. Now it's furthered by his. Nobody claims ownership of the temple except God. It's his temple. So what we see here is Malachi is saying that there's going to be a first messenger that gives a warning, and then Yahweh himself, God himself, will come to his temple. Now notice, he continues, he says, and the messenger of the covenant. Now who's that? Well, I would argue it's Yahweh. It's God. Now if you look with me in the text, you'll see a perfect parallel between 1B and 1C. In other words, the Lord is, is parallel to a messenger of the covenant. Whom you seek is parallel with in whom you delight. He will be coming is uh, parallel with he is coming. In other words, Malachi is saying that this messenger of the covenant is Yahweh. And he's going to come among his people. Now, he's a messenger of the covenant. And remember, when we see the word covenant, in this case, I want you to think of a series of covenants. I want you to think of Adam. I want you to think of Noah. I want you to think of Abraham. I want you to think of Moses. All these covenants, they are different one from another, but they all have a progression and a unity to them. And they're all building up to this great eternal covenant, this perfect covenant that Jeremiah prophesies. And so here, the messenger of the covenant is going to be the one that fulfills them all. The messenger of the covenant is going to ratify them. Now, now the, the New Testament would point this to being Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus Christ at the Last Supper said, he said that this is the new covenant in my blood. That, that Jesus Christ is the one who dies to ratify a covenant to make us the people of God and to make God our Father. That Malachi is saying John's going to come and that Jesus is going to come and he's going to establish a new and perfect covenant whereby we can be drawn into a relationship with God, that justice will be dealt with by him who forges the covenant, and mercy will be given to us. See, the same thing in Hebrews 13, 20. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. So what I'm saying is that, that in bringing justice that he's brought forth his son to ratify, to establish a covenant whereby we can be forgiven and drawn into a relationship with God. This justice is meted out through this messenger of the covenant, purifying us so that we can be in God's presence. Look with me in two. He says, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and a fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. In other words, this messenger of a covenant is going to purify a people. It, this messenger, this Jesus, is going to be like fire and soap. You know what fire does? So fire heats up the metal, and it takes an, it takes an impressious or a, a, a polluted metal, and it begins to purify it. It takes a, a less valuable metal and it makes it more valuable by removing the impurities, the slag or the dross out of it. That, that, that soap cleanses something that has been made dirty. And so this Jesus incoming before full justice is given is going to purify a people. 
He's like a refiner, so he sits at the pot of silver, and, and he is turning up the heat so that as the dross comes up, it's ta- it comes up, it's removed. And he does that over and over, and as tradition holds, of course, the silversmith will look into the pot, and when he can see a reflection of himself, he sees that it is pure. It's been made ready. That's the role of Christ in terms of purifying a people. We see that he's going to start in the house of Levi in leadership, and then he's going to move to all people, as we see in verse 4 with Jerusalem and Judah. So this coming of justice is going to be preceded by this coming of a purification. For the Christian, this is not a bad thing. Remember, to purify is not to destroy. Fire is, this fire that he's speaking about isn't indiscriminate consuming forests, but it's intentional in purifying a people. Christian, for the Christian here, we look at suffering as a means of purification. That we don't look at suffering as something I've just got to get out of. Or suffering would indicate that I'm not having the abundant life. Or that if I'm suffering, God must not love me. There may be forms of discipline in that, without a doubt. But that God uses suffering and all things to begin to purify people, to draw us away from this world, to prepare us to see him. So, so Christian, suffering readies us. Because for the Christian, it comes from the hand of God. I think about in, in, um, in First Peter, he says, Uh, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, there's an intention to the suffering of the people, and that is to purify. I think this is what Jesus is getting at when he says he's coming to his temple. You know he did, in fact, John 2. He went right to the temple and, and purified it. But the temple was never the place, really, that was to grab our attention. You know, I think a lot of the time, especially uh, for the Israelites at this time, they saw the temple as everything. The temple was never everything. The temple was only a pointer to what God was doing. I mean, the temple, even Solomon, the builder of the first temple, said that God can't dwell in a building made with the hands of men. The temple was pointing to a time where God would dwell with his people, just like he did in Genesis 2 just like he will in Revelation 21, that the temple is just pointing forward. Jesus is coming to purify us. The temple is the outward demonstration and promise. I, God, will dwell with my people. This is our greatest hope. This is our greatest joy to be face-to-face with the one who's created all things. And so Jesus is coming to purify, to ready, to make a people ready unto God. That's what suffering does. It readies us for that. But this mercy that he brings in purifying us is followed by verse 5. And this is where justice is finally meted out. He says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. He's going to draw near to us for judgment. What, What does this mean? This is a heavy text. I, I, we were praying it this morning uh, before, and uh, as Daniel was praying, it hit me with the weight of these words. And here I've been in this text all week, and 
uh, it was just, I was reminded of how heavy this text is. I'll draw near to you with judgment. Um, he says, I'll be a swift witness. This messenger of this covenant, this Jesus, this ratifier of all things upon whom the covenant sits, this Jesus is going to come near for judgment. Uh, he's both the judge, uh, but he's also the witness. He's a swift witness. Swift isn't speaking about speed, but about his effectiveness. In other words, there's no lobbyists that you have in heaven. Jesus is the witness to present all the data. And and what he presents here is the sin of men against them. He he draws these. He says, against sorcerers and adulterers and those who swear falsely or those who lie. Against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless. Against those who thrust aside the sojourner. It's interesting with those, except for the sorcerer, they're all against each other. Now, I don't know that these, these six evils are any worse than six other evils that we could find in Scripture. But I think he chose these horizontal-type sins because we can quickly say, well, yeah, that's just the way you do business. You know, well, I can't help everybody. In other words, we look at these as social sins, and we don't see them as against God. And he's saying, no, they're against me. You're sinning against me. God's saying, when you don't treat your employees well, I'm offended. When you don't care for the widow and the orphan, you're sinning against me. I'm the cosmic Lord of hosts. I'm offended by that. And it says that Jesus Christ will come in judgment against them. But all these sins flow out of one attitude. And if you look in the text, he says, they do not fear me. We've seen that over and over. This lack of fear of God. That there is no fear of God. And when there is no fear of God, then there is ease to cross what God has said. Now, when I speak about fear, I'm not talking about a Halloween fright. I'm talking about an awareness of his absolute majesty and holiness. I'm talking about one that Isaiah could not even look at. I'm talking about one that has angels just saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That that if we were to look upon him, we would perish. That they couldn't touch the mountain that he was on because he was so holy. To to fear that power, to fear that holiness. I mean, this is the one who is coming in judgment. Think about John. John leaning on the breast of our Lord at the Last Supper. They were buddies. They were friends. They were close. They were tight. And then when he sees them on the island of Patmos... What does it say? I went up and, and gave him a high five. No, I don't think so. He fell at his feet as though dead because of the glory of the resurrected Christ, this coming judge, who will be a swift witness because we didn't fear him. People of God must move in fear. Not a joyless fear, as we're going to see, but a fear nonetheless, a reverence of his holiness. You know, in Jesus' first coming, he did bring justice, by the way. I mean, he did say, I did not come to bring peace but a sword to divide mothers from daughters and fathers from sons. We know that Jesus said, if they don't believe, they're condemned already. There was a justice already in play once Jesus hit the ground. When John the Baptist spoke to the Pharisees, he says, the axe is already at the root of the trees. In other words, judgment is beginning now because the Son has come. But there is not a full justice until this, when he comes near for judgment. 
And that is the day in front of us, right? In fact, Jesus said in John 5.22, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So the judge will be Christ. In Revelation 6, it says, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us. From the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? You know, the Libyans probably feel a measure of justice when they found Gaddafi in a drain pipe. They don't know what justice is. For the great day of the wrath has come. You know, back in 1980, I was in college, and I remember Mount St. Helens. And those of you who are too young to remember it, it was kind of a a bit of a pop over on the western side of our country when part of a mountain blew off. What was amazing about this, a number of people died, over over 60 people died, um, that this mountain, Mount St. Helens, uh, had been rumbling for a while. And... uh, Scientists were out there and geologists were out there trying to study it. And finally they began to realize, hey, this thing really is making some noise. And and they were trying to evacuate everyone off the mountain. And uh, people said, it's been doing that forever. I mean, it's no big deal. I mean, we, my grandpappy and my grand-grandpappy have been here. And, and it, it's just going on the way it is. Well, then one day, I forget, I, I want to say it was about the size of the mountain that was removed was huge and uh, of course it sent cloud plumes all over the place it it uh, destroyed homes and railroads and uh, it was just a disaster plus the shame of it was nobody needed to die they could have heated the warning and so we have this warning that judgment is going to draw near. And so and justice will draw near. Justice will be meted out. There's absolute assurance in that. But how are we so assured? Well, because he came one time already. I mean, the, the fact that John the Baptist came announcing the coming of Jesus and Jesus brought a measure of judgment is only setting up the reality that judgment is yet to come in its full measure. Now, now, so what do we take away from this? Well, at a minimum, for the Christian here, if you're a Christian, then, then you are being warned. I don't want you to fear judgment. If we believe in God and the Son of God, then we pass from death to life. We pass out of judgment in John 5.24. You don't have to fear judgment. Why? Well, because judgment has taken place on Jesus. Well, is this unjust? No. No, God has exhibited justice for our sins by punishing the Son in place of us. Luke was sharing this in the Bible study today, this idea of substitution. That God's always just. God will never overlook sin forever. And and, and the glory about being a Christian is that by faith in Christ, our sins are given to him. Not just our sin, sin, but our guilt and our shame. 
all that we should be standing before God on. This is the nature of the gospel. It's been given to Christ. And so God judges Christ righteously for our sin. The full wrath and full vent of God's fury was poured upon the Son. This is what we call propitiation. He's absorbing the wrath of God that we should bear. Now, folks, that doesn't mean we sit back and lollygag until he comes. We're living a life of repentance and faith. We're looking at our souls. We're constantly repenting and exercising faith. We're constantly actively moving. So when you hear sermons like last week with marriage, you say, well, I'm already saved. Well, then act it and, and repent of those sins. If you know he's purifying you to be ready, then don't sit comfortably in that which we wouldn't sit comfortably, the sin in your life. So, so, so you, you have the ability to live this life with joy because the Christian, if you're truly a Christian, you don't mind confessing you're a sinner. You don't mind recognizing that you're broken. You don't mind saying, you know what, I'm failing here. I need to repent before you. It's freeing. I love to repent. Because it just reminds me of why I'm repenting. To enjoy the fruits of the gospel that Christ has earned for me. So folks, if you're a Christian, you won't fear judgment, but you'll be practicing repentance and faith. I'm going to believe in God that what he has for me is greater than this latest passion I'm pursuing that's leading me into sin, I'm going to repent of that and say, no, I'm going to take what God has for me. Now, that's for the Christian. For the religious here, of which I know we have some, when I speak about the religious, I'm not speaking about the Christian. The religious person is the one, the religious person is the one who follows all the rules. You keep the rules. Your doctrine may be airtight. It's great doctrine. You follow the rules. You do what you're supposed to do. You may even add rules. That's the great thing about the religious is they don't feel like the Bible has enough. So we're going to add to it. Your dress has got to be a certain height, your hair, and you've got to use a certain language with people. I mean, just the legalistic rules that I've heard are just overwhelmingly stifling. But, but that's where their hope is. Their confidence is rooted in who they are or, or what they believe or, or the rules that they follow. There's no love for the Savior. It's funny. Among, among, among the religious, I don't hear much about love. It's, but what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He sums up the whole law in that. The religious pe- people usually are, are shy on love, shy on affections. They're shy on devotion. These feelings that are birthed out of right theology. I, I, would, I would ask you to pay heed. I would ask you to repent. You know, it's interesting. When John the Baptist came to prepare the way, he confronted these religious people, the Pharisees. Here's what he says in, in Matthew 3. He says, In the days of John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. This is amazing. This is the religious people. They believed in doctrine. That was another point that Luke made that was unbelievable. They take the doctrine of Christ as done, and they don't take Christ. That's a very good point. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree therefore, therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Boy, that is alarming for an American Christian audience. Now, of course, if you're non-Christian here, uh, my, my hope and desire is that, you know, I think intuitively you know that there's judgment. It, it just, it's around us. We may want to delude ourselves to it. But if you're a non-Christian, th- there is something intuitive about justice. There's something right about it. There's something good about it. There's something that draws you toward it. And yet this justice is by God against us. Remember, it's against us because of our sin, not because of some issue of election. It's against the sin of men that people will be judged. And, and I, would, I would encourage you that the offer stands. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm humble and gentle of heart. So the gospel, because we're between these two comings, the gospel stands for you to repent of your sins and to confess Jesus Christ, to claim him alone as the means through which you can come to God, that he is the author and the ratifier of the greatest covenant, whereby God is a father to you and you are a son to him. So I I just want to pray for us um, And then I I would like you to pray in response to this word. It's a difficult thing to reconcile the existence of evil in the midst of this world when we proclaim a good and holy God. But I just want to assure you that God has already made, he's already sent a messenger to warn. He's already sent the son to satisfy justice for the salvation of those who come to him by faith. And yet, Full justice will come when he returns with judgment in hand. So let me give a word of prayer, and then I'd ask you to pray with me and, and, and pray briefly, pray out loud that we can join with you. Um, Father, thank you for the Son. Thank you that he is our justice. That uh, the wrath that we so richly deserve has been shouldered and borne by him and that by faith we enjoy his privileges, his beauty and his, even his glory. Father, make us mindful of the immense worth of Jesus that our hearts are filled with delight over him. Father, this life, you may preserve us ten times in this life, but may it always result in giving thanks and giving worship and honor for Christ.